0: As the war in Ukraine grinds on, the Ukrainian president, Vladimir Zelensky, has now conceded, it seems at least, that the country will not become a member of NATO. We have heard for years that the doors were open, but we also heard that we could not join. Peace talks are continuing between Ukraine and Russia, but here the Foreign Secretary Liz Truss doesn't sound hopeful.
1: I am very, very
2: concerned that Putin is playing a smoke and mirrors game of trying to claim that he is seeking peace whilst at the same time continuing with this appalling war.
0: Meanwhile, the longer this war goes on, the greater, it seems, the risk of Vladimir Putin escalating things even further. Earlier this week, the UN chief Antonio Guterres made this pretty terrifying statement. The prospect of nuclear conflict, once unthinkable, is now
3: back within the realm of possibility.
0: With echoes of the Cold War era, and in particular, when I came of age in the 1980s, the prospect of nuclear war is being talked about, which prompts some pretty obvious questions. How on earth did we get here, and is there any way out? I'm John Harris, and you're listening to Politics Weekly UK for The Guardian. We're going to begin this week's episode by talking to someone in Ukraine. Kira Rudik is a Ukrainian MP. The Ukrainian parliament, amazingly, is still meeting. That is a practical aspect, but obviously it's really, really symbolic as well. And for us, including her voice in this podcast is crucial, really. British voices are all very well, but we've got to hear from people who are right in the midst of what's going on. Hello? Hello. Hi, Kira.
2: Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. That's
0: great. Thank you so much for talking to us.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: I, I mean, I suppose I'll, I'll just start by asking you what I'd ask anybody, which is how are you?
2: I'm OK. My house is standing still and uh, the people who are around me, they are all doing OK. So I think it's enough to say, OK, we are OK.
0: OK. And you're in Kiev, right? Right. Presumably you reasonably regularly now are hearing explosions. I mean, there is, there is a sense that the Russian invasion is, is close by. Is that true?
2: Uh, yes, and uh, the air raid sirens, are, they just went on. But we are experienced citizens of the city that has been under the shelling, so we know that during the day is, it's li- less likely to hit. And you know why is that? Because during the day it's less terrifying. So Russians really are attacking at night.
0: What does your day look like? I mean, over the over the last three weeks,
2: uh, my day starts with the training. Uh, so I I started from the day one uh, assembling my resistance team here in Kiev, and uh, we are armed and I'm training with the team.
0: And, and presumably, up to now, you had no experience of military activity and guns and all of that. That's completely new.
2: Right. Well, I'm like training for twenty one days. So. Right. I can tell you, I'm much better than on day one.
0: <laughs> okay, keep going. After training, what happened?
2: So it turns out during the war, the MP is uh, MP's duty as just to come in, show your ID, and get things organized because the war is uh, a chaos. So this is what I'm doing. Uh, like if there is a massive amount of refugees coming from the east, then I'm usually going there to the train station to help out, make sure that everybody's doing their stuff. Uh, also, yesterday we had a parliamentary seating. So in 21 days, we had it uh, three times, every time in secrecy. So yesterday, part of my day was that.
0: Okay so it sounds like broadly speaking there are two sides to your life at the moment one is is being very very involved in resistance and and the military side of things and then there's also your life as a member of parliament and it's fascinating and amazing to me that parliament is still meeting what what does parliament discuss what have you been talking about
2: well we discuss everything online and we are only meeting to vote offline because it's super dangerous uh, to do this and every time we decide that we need to get together our intelligence team security team everybody are saying strong no strong no and then and and then we figure out the way to do it so for example yesterday there was actually a list of items that we needed to have done to make sure that the actually country operates Uh, During during the war, because we are looking at it as a, you know, temporary situation that will be resolved at some point and we will then be living our normal life. And I could tell you my uh, like in the late evenings, I'm working on the legislation for for the rebuilding of the country. Wow. I'm I'm planning that we will be done soon and then we will be rebuilding every bridge that is burned will have to be replaced. Every uh, city that is destroyed will need to be rebuilt. All that. And this is pretty, you know, self-motivating thing.
0: Tell me why you say that you're preparing for reconstruction and also you think it will start to happen quite soon. Why do you think that?
2: Well, this is the thing that that keeps me sane. I know that the work would be longer than we expect. And I know that there are Uh, many, many uh, important factors that uh, may influence the the length of the war. So I do believe in ourselves. I know that we will be fighting him. uh, We will be fighting Putin and Russian forces on the ground, and we are doing it very well. But we also know that uh, the the victory depends on quite a few factors that are not on us. The first one is the no-fly zone. Because this is crucial this is critical for us to, to to get the protection for our skies to get the protection for our cities the second is the sanctions of how soon they will take Russia down there is additional the question if NATO forces or additional countries will be getting involved into uh, into the war and all of that is something that we we, we can try to influence but these are pretty independent factors
0: I wanted to ask you about um, a no-fly zone, why that's important and how you feel about the fact that um, one is not in place?
2: So there are, uh, the, the fight and the war between Russia and Ukraine is going into like two dimensions. The first dimension is the ground fight. Uh, this is where we are doing very well. So in 21 days, No major Ukrainian cities have been taken by Russians. The second dimension is in the air. This is where Putin dominates. Instead of just trying to fight us on the ground where he figured out that he's losing, they are just bombarding our cities from the air there is not much that you can do when uh, when there is an uh, missile going into your home right okay. so here in in my house i'm ready to direct uh do the direct war because we have been training we are ready for a siege because we have been uh, waiting for this for 21 days and we have uh, supplies and food and water. And Kiev, honestly, right now is a fortress. But we are not ready and we cannot be ready to the bombs coming into our homes. Like, what can you do as a person like when there are bombs coming to your home? This is why we are asking our allies to help us out.
0: Okay. Now, here, here's an obvious response to that. Sitting here in London in this small island in Northern Europe, I have no right really to talk about feeling scared compared to what you're going through. But the prospect of a no-fly zone scares me because that entails direct combat between Russia and NATO and escalation towards what, what in, you know would be reasonably likely to be nuclear conflict. And that terrifies me. You must understand that.
2: I do. And this is my response, first of all there is a way to give us the jets without getting directly involved. Like, just give us the jets. But Russia has we already said
0: it would, it would understand that as an act of war or something close to
2: it. Well, in eight years of fighting with Russia, what we learned is that there is no way of taming the tyrant, that he will always be attacking and he will never be keeping his word. And this is an illusion that uh, this global war has not begun yet. And right now, I think for you in London, it's convenient that we will be fighting ourselves and push him back. We are right now saying, guys, we are fighting ourselves. We are risking our lives. We are we are getting killed. Give us additional support, different ways. Do it like there are there are many ways to give us the jets to give us the support that we do need.
0: You think that if that were to happen we could call Putin's bluff, that he, might, he would not follow through
2: on those threats? Uh, how can he follow through? He cannot even conquer us. What, can, what do you think that he will do? Well, okay, he said, okay, I'm starting the World War III. And then what? And I can tell you what is much riskier than what everybody is afraid of, and which I call again a bluff, that the red button that he wants to push, the nuclear button. The more scary is right now that he has been constantly bombarding the nuclear plants in Ukraine. This is from the inside sounds much riskier than, than the plan that Putin may or may not push the red button. Maybe. How did you,
0: how did you feel yesterday when president Zelensky ruled out Ukraine joining NATO?
2: Well, again, he did not rule out joining NATO. He said, I think you are not taking us in, but we have in our constitution written that ukraine wants to join nato so uh, it's a little bit different things in between what is written in constitution and what ukrainian people want and what the negotiations that the president zelensky is in right now demand from him
1: would you sacrifice
0: so, would you sacrifice that aspiration though for the sake of of peace and a russian withdrawal
2: uh my uh, i will ask you this what if we uh, conclude and have a peace, and next day Putin attacks further. What would happen then? So, so I will you, tell you, you want
0: Ukraine to hang on to that aspiration and to sooner or later join NATO?
2: Yes, I do. And because I do not believe any uh, peaceful negotiation with Putin. I do not believe that he will be able to keep his word. I know that he wants this war and he will continue on this war. We have been at war for eight years. Every day, he would say yes to uh, ceasefire, and every single day, his troops would be would be firing. So it, there is no peaceful uh, agreement with him because okay. he will always break his word.
0: Okay. So in that sense, simply put, NATO membership would make Ukraine a lot safer. That's one point. Right. And then, secondly, I, I wanted to ask you about. Ukraine and nuclear weapons. Would you like Ukraine to have its own nuclear weapons?
2: At some point, yes, I think it was a mistake that uh, we trusted the countries who um, had the Budapest Memorandum Agreement. Look, uh, it was 1994, and everybody believed in peace in the whole world, and it was Ukraine, Russia, United States, and United Kingdom. And we had the third largest nuclear arsenal in the world. And we gave it up for the promises of the protection of our sovereignty. So what is happening right now is uh, makes so many MPs in Ukraine and most important in other countries, small countries who are also thinking what would happen if they are attacked by somebody, by some tyrants. They think, yeah, we we'll probably need to start working on our nuclear program. And but, I totally see that. Of course because I, I right mean I, down, I
0: understand yeah. I understand it logically but then also that creates a, an even more dangerous world doesn't it? I mean that's it what nucle- that's that I, what yeah. nuclear proliferation <laughs> is.
2: Yeah, this is like this is the opposite of what we want to create as the world that everybody wants to live in, right? And this is why I'm saying that, that right now, by procrastinating, by hoping that NATO can stay away from from uh, Ukraine-Russia war, uh, this creates this uh, crazy situation with the global security con- conception because the global security concept right now is broken. I don't know if I will be in the next parliament or not. But uh, I know definitely that these questions will be raised because if we had a nuclear uh, arsenal right now, the situation would be quite different.
0: I I read that you are on uh, Vladimir Putin's or his regime's target list. And I wonder how scared you feel about that.
2: Well, I developed a funny answer to that. And I'm sure We're going to share it with, it with you uh, that I'm on a Putin skill list, but I'm also on Ukraine's top 10 bachelorette list. And I hope that these lists even one another. <laughs> but <laughs> there is like there is no good answer to that. Right. We know that one of the Putin's ways of attacking us as Ukraine is destroying either Ukrainian parliamentarians or president or, or, uh, or, or government. And one of the examples of that was how he is acting in Melitopol, where they kidnapped mayor
3: and yeah, put another yeah.
2: person and said, this is your new mayor. This is your conceptually, like, like look at ho- how he even thinks that these things could operate. And I'm yelling that this is not how democracy works. And this shows you like this huge difference, like this uh, eternal difference in between Russia and Ukraine. We are democratic countries. We elect our officials and we know that you cannot kidnap and then put a person instead and saying, hello, this is your mayor. But Russia thinks it's fine because this is what they're doing, because this is the concept of tyranny that is going inside their heads. And this is why we are fighting, because we are free country. We, are, we in, in the darkest and the deepest dreams, we don't want to have what Russia has right now. We don't want this regime. We don't want it at all.
0: You sound amazingly resolute and determined in a way that sort of makes my jaw hit the floor. But fear must be constantly in your mind as well.
2: Well, there are many things that I'm afraid. Well, first of things that I'm afraid of, things that I that I don't have a control of. And every time you're getting up to sleep, you don't know if you are going to wake up. Yeah, is it scary? Yes, it is. You cannot live your life in a bomb shelter and you just then pleading for getting the protection where you can. I'm very, very afraid that... Uh, that the decision that NATO needs to, to make, that the Western countries need to make, that it will come, but it will be very late. But this all creates a rage and creates a hope and creates the, uh, this motivation to train harder, to fight harder, to get all the money in the world into Ukraine so we can get the supplies we need and to talk to every single person that I see and know, the, every single politician in the world and tell them, talk to your government, talk to your leaders and provide us with a no-fly zone because this is critical right now because this is the way for us to win. This is a chance for us to win, to survive and make sure that, that there is a future.
0: On that note, I will let you go. Thank you so much for joining us. Obviously, we send best wishes and solidarity from the UK.
2: Thank take, you so much.
0: Take care. Thank All you. the best. Thank, Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Glory to Ukraine.
0: That was a tremendously sort of sobering, but also humbling conversation really i think probably here we still think about politics at least partly in the abstract but there's someone sort of living out politics and democracy in the most sort of visceral way which involves being very resolute and determined amazingly so but also having to deal with a level of fear that i have to be honest i can't even comprehend and it really really makes you think about every aspect of this conflict We'll be talking about the sort of UK end of that in a moment with The Guardian's defence and security editor, Dan Sabah, and Clive Lewis, the Labour MP for Norwich South.
1: Hello, Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland here. I now have my own U.S. politics podcast, which is, helpfully, called Politics Weekly America. So if you want to hear my interviews with politicians like Hillary Clinton or expert analysis from Guardian journalists and the latest news from Washington, D.C. and beyond, you should subscribe. To do that, just type Politics Weekly America into Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be there Every Friday.
0: Welcome back. I'm now joined in the studio by the Guardian's defence and security editor, Dan Saber and Clive Lewis, the Labour MP for Norwich South. Some of you may know that he served in Afghanistan as part of a NATO deployment in 2009 and in 2016... Uh, somewhat briefly, he was Shadow Defence Secretary. Hello to you both.
1: Hello. Hi there.
0: Um, earlier on, I spoke to Kira Ruddick, who's a, a Ukrainian MP, and she really reminded me of the impossibility, really, of Ukraine's position in the midst of not only the Russian invasion, but where NATO is in this situation. And following on from that, I wanted to talk about two things with you both today. Firstly, NATO, and really the central question of the countries it pro- protects, and perhaps the countries, as we've seen, that it could be accused of provoking, allegedly. And secondly, the clear fact that the threat of nuclear weapons and nuclear war hangs over us once again, and the questions that prompts about what kind of world we're living in now. First of all, let's talk about NATO. Um, when I spoke to Kira, the Ukrainian MP, and I mean this won't be unexpected to either of you, she very passionately made the case for the West assisting Ukraine with a no-fly zone, at the very least supplying fighter planes so Ukraine could enforce a no-fly zone, which, if we believe Russian rhetoric, even that would be taken potentially as an act of war. For all that it's hard for me, sitting in London, to argue with what she's saying, I find that very sort of morally difficult. I find the prospect of any escalation, and that escalation in particular, terrifying. How do you even begin to reconcile those two positions if if you can at all, Clive, how do you feel about that? The Ukrainian voices say saying we want a no-fly zone and all of us sitting here saying, well, we can't do that.
3: No, it's hard because your instinct is to help. And I think it's right that we're supplying um, defensive weapons, anti-aircraft weapons, anti-tank weapons um, to uh, the Ukrainian people. Now, look, there are voices in the chamber in, in Parliament here who are now calling for this, but they clearly... Uh, look, anyone can call for it, and I can understand people's emotions are high But there there has to be a level of rationality to this and also extreme caution, because this is a very, very extremely dangerous situation. People can feel that in their bones, John. But
0: Dan, the moral gap between Ukraine's predicament and its calls for a no-fly zone and NATO refusing to implement one, the sense of that gap is going to get greater, isn't it? as as Russia in all likelihood sort of escalates the awfulness of what it's doing, we're going to feel
1: this gap more and more, aren't we? Well, it's complicated. I fear we're going to terrify the listeners with all this talk of nuclear weapons and so forth. Uh, the no-fly zone. Uh, it, it is interesting that Ukraine have pressed uh, repeatedly, you know, President Zelensky said to the MPs in the House of Commons, I'm sure Clive was there, um, you know, please close our skies. But the reality is that a no-fly zone is not a runner politically. Joe Biden himself has ruled it out. The Americans have ruled it out. And if the Americans say no, NATO says no. Uh, na- native planes are not going to fight their way into Ukrainian airspace, fight Russian jets over, the, uh, over Ukraine. That's what would be required. And it wouldn't be very militarily useful either. You know, uh, it would prevent what's left of the Ukrainian Air Force, and there is some of it left from operating. It's having a major deterrent effect on the Russians. Curiously absent, actually, Russian Air Force, which doesn't want to fight in this war particularly, uh, it, you know, it seems. And, and, and actually, the real problem... That, you, that, that Ukraine faces is not Russian air power. The real problem is the cruel bombardment and shelling from Russian artillery. No fly zone doesn't prevent that.
0: Okay, let's talk about NATO itself. We're encouraged to think of NATO as a force for stability and security. But I suppose if Ukraine tells us anything, it's that there is security and stability for people under the NATO umbrella. And if you're outside that, you're open to the kind of chaos and war we're seeing now. And that's difficult, isn't it? Doesn't that that point up very clearly the limitations of NATO?
3: Look, I was in Afghanistan with ISAF, that's NATO. The last time I checked, Afghanistan wasn't in Europe. So th- there were questions about how NATO has developed in the post-Cold War period, which mean that NATO technically, is not simply a defensive organization. I'm sure someone somewhere has and will make the case that kind of going into Afghanistan was a defensive posture for Europe. But, I mean, just look at the situation in Afghanistan. I haven't seen any special debates on the situation in Afghanistan, the fact that Gordon Brown is screaming about this. Others are screaming about it. There are millions of people starving on the brink of starvation that's now been knocked out of the news you know and that one lands on us and and nato went into afghanistan so look yes nato in theory is a defensive pact and organization but i'm afraid to say that actually if we want to call nato a a defensive organization it's going to have to act like one and it hasn't recently now you know i kind of want to move away from this kind of anyone outside of nato anyone outside of the west are the bad guys who you know who who decided the bad guys and We're the good guys. We need I think one of the problems is that we need a slightly more nuanced view of the world, that there are shades of grey, and sometimes we end up in those shades of grey. I mean,
0: the key point about NATO for any of its member countries really centres on Article 5, which, to paraphrase, says an attack on one is an attack on all. That's the essence of collective security. What that means in practical terms has always been clouded by what military types call strategic ambiguity, and that, that remains the case now,
1: right? Yeah, the full phrasing of Article 5 has some ambiguity in it. Um, but yes, you know, if one member state was attacked, then everyone comes to their aid, and then it's slightly a question of how the member states might, might come to their aid. And it's only been, you know, it dates back from the foundation of NATO in 1949... And it's only been invoked once, famously after the September 11 attacks on the United States, which was seen as an important moment.
0: But should we sit here and feel confident that Article 5 and NATO membership means that the Baltic states, for example, can sleep easy at night and Poland can sleep easy at night?
1: I mean, right now, you know, Putin's got his hands full. The idea that they were, you know, the Russia would open a second front by... Firing some missiles into Poland strikes me as highly unlikely, indeed highly rash, and would invite an awful lot of dangerous escalation and an awful lot of military difficulty for him. Uh, but if, if, if Russia can defeat Ukraine in such a way that it feels emboldened, and, and week, three weeks is not a long time in a war, we, we shouldn't judge Russia may have fought a bad campaign, but it doesn't mean it's lost the war or anything like that.
0: I mean, everything that, that you both have just said denotes the fact that, albeit reluctantly, We are in a new political, geopolitical moment here. The talk is of increasing defence spending. There's a a sense, really, of accepting, even celebrating, perhaps, our our place on one side of a world divided into two camps. And uh, it strikes me that we need to ask questions about that. And we need to ask questions as well about the fact that the threat of of nuclear war, if it ever went away, is really back in the foreground. And and I think... There needs to be a conversation about this. I mean, I always felt this way about nuclear weapons since I've joined CND as a terrified 13 year old back in the 80s, which is that there is a political conversation you can have about that, but there's also a moral conversation about that as well. That to sit under a nuclear umbrella isn't just about safety and security, it's also about a sort of ongoing sense of collective fear and trauma, really. And people rightly feel very scared when they hear things like this. This is Sajid Javid talking.
3: We've been very clear uh, from the start with our NATO allies that if there is any kind of attack on NATO territory, then it will be war with NATO and there will be a severe response. If If a single Russian toe cap steps into NATO territory, there will be war with NATO.
0: I don't really want my politicians talking like
3: that, I have to uh, say. I don't know how
0: you feel about that, no. Clive.
3: And I, I just think in this place, so many people get carried away. I think there's a, a feeling that, you, that the, the real statesmanship could takes place in moments like this. And this is where you can make your mark on history. And I think some, some of us in here get carried away. And, and it, 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 it's, it's, it's dangerous and um, it's not pleasant. Why did he say it, Dan?
1: I, I'm faintly troubled by the health secretary wanting to declare war on Russia. I sort of find that slightly. Oily. I think. I think he partly said it because he was doing a media round and he was asked, which says everything you need to know about.
0: But was that the about, line that about, day, about, or do you responses? think? Or do you think he was talking off off the cuff, misguidedly? I, I, no,
1: I think that is roughly that is roughly speaking the line as a kind of machismo line. If you if you cross Boris Johnson's use this formulation, you know about toe caps, I recall. But but I mean, you know, you, you strike against NATO and will we'll strike back. I mean, it, it is so important in this moment. You you know you must be people must be calm must be slow to take offence just v- v- calm every, calm everything right down just just you know respond in the calmest most proportional way and in a, you know and if necessary t- turn the other cheek if God forbid a stray Russian missile went into Poland uh, uh, you know you don't respond with some kind of you know military strike you accept it for what it is it's a, a wretched one-off
0: Clive all of this is sort of very sensitive and extremely politicised within the Labour Party. Questions about nuclear strikes, nuclear weapons, Britain's place within NATO, and all of that. Any Labour leader in recent memory has been asked this tired, clichéd, somewhat stupid question of whether they'd press the nuclear button. Keir Starmer now seems very exercised about a part of the Labour Party, which has been there since I can remember, which is sceptical about NATO, arguably has strayed far too close to uh, sort of giving political space to Putin, but nonetheless reflects longstanding Labour traditions of wanting Britain perhaps to be non-aligned, being in favour of nuclear disarmament, broadly being pacifist and all that. And that, in the middle of this very sort of wound-up, somewhat shrill atmosphere that war creates, is now being seen as illegitimate within the Labour Party. It's not, is it?
3: No, it's not. And, and there needs to be a place for it in our party. My problem with what's happening at the moment and the way that this is being shut down inside the Labour Party is that the Labour Party is the opposition. We are in a kind of predominantly two-party system. There has to be a political party, surely, or an element of a political party, which is arguing for rational alternatives to so-called mutually assured destruction. So I, I, I understand why it's a very difficult situation at the moment. But, you know, you look at the world, we are in two camps. There are those with nuclear weapons and those without. And those with nuclear weapons, basically, it's premised on the fact that you are prepared to annihilate potentially hundreds of millions, if not billions, of people—that's what—that's what the question is asked of every Labour leader, or potential Labour leader, and Prime Minister: Would you push that button? Which is, in a way, an insane uh, question to ask. So, no, look, I think, yeah. Uh, if this was, if it was you, what would your answer be? I, I gave my answer. I said, what, I, I, I threw it back at the presenter, and I said, Why do you define leadership by someone's ability to incinerate? potentially billions of men, women, and children. Is that that how you define good leadership?
0: You you mentioned a moment ago the divide within the world between those who sit under the nuclear umbrella and those who don't. When I was talking to Kira, the Ukrainian MP, she said she'd like Ukraine now um, to have nuclear weapons. And also she talked about this moment being full of the prospect of nuclear proliferation, because it's not unreasonable to draw the conclusion from what's happened to Ukraine. If you're a small and somewhat vulnerable country then you want in as well and you want nuclear weapons
1: i, I, I think it's a sort of understandable observation in a moment of passion but i think mercifully also not very realistic uh, you know the, the act of acquiring n- nuclear weapons is, is 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 very very difficult and there are you know worries about proliferation but i think there would be an awful lot of pressure on ukraine to desist if it if it was able to go down that road i mean at the moment its industrial base is shattered and it, it, it's far from that so i think it's no,
0: it's relevant in the context of iran say isn't it in the well, in the yeah, midst of, I mean, a, of yeah, a moment
1: like this sure and iran's been you know iran's been squeezed by the most intense sanctions of course iran's a country that's wanted to repeatedly stand up to the us and is sort of in a different geopolitical space to ukraine yeah i mean look the idea of the proliferation of nuclear weapons is terrifying there's no there's no doubt about it and it, there's nothing about it that's attractive what all i'm saying is i don't know if ukraine can realistically get in that position
0: how realistic is the prospect of nuclear weapons be they either huge unimaginably large nuclear weapons or battlefield nuclear it's- weapons being used in the in the in the midst of all this
1: there's no such thing as battlefield nuclear weapons okay. let's just 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 let's just, that let's just remove that delusion A battlefield right, nuclear let weapon. let me
0: ask you that question in a more simple way how realistic is the prospect of the use of nuclear weapons in in the midst of this crisis do you think uh,
1: i i think it still remains highly unlikely i think that we should be more worried about the possibility r- real possibility of the use of chemical weapons by russia and ukraine i think that what does make you worry a bit is that that the, that Vladimir Putin's psychology has clearly changed. He is not the cautious decision-maker, the man who would deny everything, you know, the man who would steal a fiver from you in front of you and deny it had taken place. You know, he's not that guy anymore. His invasion of Ukraine has shown a terrifying impetuosity or, you know, he's headstrong in a potentially dangerous way. So, yes, it does make you ever so slightly more worried. I, I, I can't I can't deny that. What I would say is there are still a number of steps that if Russia was serious about using nuclear weapons, it would have a, they would have a destructive impact not just on Ukraine, crane but on russia and of course the world it would be an utterly game-changing event in moral terms and he has to take a number of sort of smaller steps you know the, the military steps which we see no sign of. so it is a worry but i still think a remote one i think the use of chemical weapons is a much more present worry
0: just to finish i want to take the conversation somewhere perhaps these conversations don't go enough i talked a moment or two ago about the moral aspects of all this, quite apart from the political and geopolitical aspects. Given the fact that nuclear war is being talked about again, I mean, I think back to the to the, the person I was when I was 12, 13, 14, when I remember being scared by this. You know, you'd wake up every morning because I'd read people very high up in the American military talking about a limited nuclear war in Europe. I'd read about the prospect of accidental nuclear war and all of that. And now... The 12, 13, 14-year-olds of today are having to deal with that worry, but they've got other worries to deal with as well. They've got the climate emergency and the prospect of, of serial pandemics, which, are, which is an ecological question as much as that. they've got that to cope with as well. We don't talk about that enough, do we, Clive?
3: No, we don't. And And this is the thing about increasing our military budgets. It's a really simple equation. If you spend more money on weapons, apart from the fact that it's the arms dealers who who engorge themselves on the taxpayers' money and the ones that, that really benefit, if you build more weapon systems and it's more likely you're going to want or will end up using them. And the 21st century is the century that most scientists said is the most dangerous one for humanity yet, for a global civilization to survive through. We have the climate crisis. We have food security issues. We have pandemics, which are likely to increase because of the climate crisis. We have population shifts. And, you know, I'm sat here listening about the nuclear threat but as has already been mentioned by Dan, the biological and chemical threat, the kind of so-called poor, man and woman's uh, nuclear option, plus you've got autonomous weapon systems, you've got AI um, now into the mix. I mean, I, I, it's pretty much like throwing petrol on a blazing fire by going down this route. And if I was a teenager, I'd be terrified as well. I have nothing comforting to say to them, but I can say that what I would say is stand up and be counted and make sure that your voice is heard and demand better from your politicians.
0: Dan, in case my kids are listening, they, they occasionally do, they're 15 and 12. Is there anything you can do to Cheer them up or make them feel slightly better.
1: Well. What I what I would say... No pressure. <laughs> thanks, 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 for John. thanks for that, John. What I would say is I think we've become complacent in the post-Cold War period about security and the prospects of great power competition. What happened was, basically, the old Cold War architecture that kept Russia and the West talking to each other, Russia and NATO, Russia and America, has been allowed to fail. Various treaties have been allowed to lapse, including treaties that banned certain types of nuclear weapons. R- Russia's been allowed to spin off on its own, in its own authoritarian direction. And I think the pandemic hasn't helped that. And has helped Vladimir Putin's own psychology, spending too much time reading books and not enough time meeting other people from other countries. And so we've become a bit complacent about that aspect. We've rightly focused on other problems, you know, environmental problems and, you know, pandemic problems. These are vital problems of our time as well. But I think we need to see these things in the round That that we must not be... You, you, you know, the sort of the last twenty-five years have been—we've we, seen world politics, you know, riven by a succession of crises, starting with the financial crash and through COVID. And you know, we've had a crisis of nationalisms, and now we have—you know—we have this security crisis. And I think we are living in a fragile world, and we have to accept and understand that. We have to start from that premise. This world needs to be protected and and loved, I suppose. You know, and we do need voices to speak up for that.
0: That's made me feel slightly better. I don't know about you, Clive. Yeah,
3: yes, I, am very, I agree 100% with that. And that's what we need more of in here. And, and hopefully some of those young people listening to this will, will want to be part of that.
0: Calm, cool heads. And, a, and, and a, a way slowly and gradually and perhaps cautiously of healing the world. I'll settle for that as an ending. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you too to Dan Sabber and Clive Lewis for being here today. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. While I'm here, I should say that you should make sure you also subscribe to my colleague Jonathan Friedland's podcast, Politics Weekly America. Tomorrow he'll be discussing Joe Biden's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine with the Congresswoman Brenda Lawrence of Michigan. That's Politics Weekly America out every Friday. Also, if you like Guardian podcasts, please fill in our survey as it helps us to make our podcast better. Be as rude as you want. Go to www.guardiansurveys.com/podcast. This episode was produced by Natalie Katena, sound by Ivan Manley, and the executive. Executive producers are Maz Eptahard and Nicole Jackson. We'll be back, God willing, next Thursday. Thank you.